You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Welcome to episode 18 of the Managemental Podcast, a weekly discussion on hot topics in the music biz for the up-and-comers, the brand newbies, the beginners, and aspiring rock stars of tomorrow. Yes, the struggle is real, my friends, but let us help you uncover some of the mystery that is this challenging business of rock and roll. I am your host, Mr. Blasco, and I am excited to be here today. As always, I am joined by my good friend, the co-host from the other coast, a record label owner, fellow artist manager, and Firefest survivor, Mr. Mike Mowry. 18 in life, you got it. 18 in life, you know. Your crime, it's time, and it's 18 in life. Oh, damn, baby. How was that? Wow, that was uh, impressive. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here talking about 60 days to signable. I think I just determined that I'm out. I'm, I'm heading. I'm going for that Skid Row cover band. What do you you think? should. Hey, you can go for the real thing. I think they still need a singer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hilarious, though. You know, it's amazing. I hadn't looked at those lyrics in forever. And, you know, I don't think I ever was singing that right, frankly. What were you getting wrong? I think I was saying something like 18 in life instead of you got it. I was like saying like 18 in life, you're counting or like you're counting or something. Like that's yeah. what my brain was remembering. But you know, this was like me growing up. I never really listened or paid much attention to the lyrics of the verses. I'm more of a chorus guy. Like the verses, they're kind of filler. <laughs> you know, but it's amazing. Like if you do, if you go and listen to a bunch of like of the political kind of punk hardcore stuff, like Seven Seconds, like one of my favorite bands of all time. Like when you do finally listen and, and look at what they're saying in the verses, you're like, whoa, that's some pretty impactful stuff. This, yep. however, I'm not sure. Ricky was a young boy. He had a heart of stone. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I gotta stop. Somebody needs to take this microphone away from me. We're recording on a Friday, Blasco. Note to self, don't ever do that to us again. Yeah, I know, dude. We're all fucking chippy. In the last episode, we talked about the value of cover songs. It was a really cool episode, so check it out if you haven't already. This week, I thought it might be fun to answer some fan questions. A lot of you have been uh, writing in and not every question constitutes an entire episode. So today we tackle a few different topics submitted by you guys, our faithful managemental congregation. This is gonna be badass, so let's get mental. So, Mike, what is new in your world, my friend? Oh, my friend, indeed. Um, There's been some really fun stuff going on this week. And just going to say the most fun thing happened last night. I was working late, 
just got a lot of fun, cool stuff that I'm falling into my lap and I'm trying to work through it. And so it's, you know, require me to, to work, you know, later into the evening. And I had the Wizards Celtics game on. You didn't happen to watch that yesterday, did you? I did not yesterday. Have you seen any of the highlights? Oh, yes. Oh. Not from yesterday, though. I've seen the oh. other ones, but yesterday I missed. Bro, you got to get on there and see Kelly Oubre. I've never even heard of this guy. He plays for the Wizards. He gets a hard pick by another guy, Kelly Olynyk or something, on the Celts. Mm. And Mug gets floored, like runs into the pick, gets dropped, the Wizards guy does, jumps to his feet and runs and just absolutely clobbers the Celtics guy. <laughs> oh, my God. How have I not heard or seen this yet? Dude, it's so amazing. I was on the phone with an agent, a booking agent friend on the West Coast. You know, it's like, whatever, 1030 my time. I go, oh, my God. And he's like, what? Is everything okay? I was like, dude, you've got to see this thing. So, you know, I've been thinking of like a million ways to incorporate that into into my life. And the best one I've got thus far this morning is... um that the Wizards guy represented society and the Celtics guy represents Donald Trump. And after the repeal of Obamacare, it was him just absolutely leveling the guy. (laughs) Oh, boy. Here we are on episode 18, and I'm happy to say that it would appear we have some real loyal and engaged listeners, and that is very exciting. Thanks for writing in with your questions. Mike and I sincerely appreciate it. So without further delay, let's get into it. Real quick, hold on. Let me interrupt you without your further delay. Now sounds like a perfect time for me to do my plug of Jabberjaw Media. We are part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network, and each week we are highlighting one show from the network. And the reason that I decided to interrupt you like a jerk and do it right now is many of these shows have very loyal listeners. You know, I'm one of the founders of the network have tried to do is bring in really cool other podcasts that we think that music lovers and music fans will like. So I'm going to tell you about one called Peer Pleasure. The Peer Pleasure Podcast. Host Dewey Halpas lets you take the role of a fly on the wall, listening in on real talk with your favorite artists and creatives while they discuss life, love, loss, and present the stories that shape them into who they are today. Hear them in their own words through candid and genuine conversation on Pure Pleasure. Upcoming guests include Anthony Green from Circus Survive, Adam D. of Killswitch Engage, and Jeff Rickley of Thursday. Visit PurePleasurePodcast.com to check out the Pure Pleasure Podcast today. And don't forget to rate and subscribe on iTunes to get all the latest and upcoming shows every Saturday. And I will say Dewey is one of the hosts that I am in touch with on a daily basis. He's a really awesome guy. He's incredibly passionate about podcasting, and I think it comes through in his interviews. And last but not least, not that this is just going to be the Jabberjaw commercial hour, but he did an awesome interview on Matt Carter's Break It Down that I listened to last night, and it, he's a really genuine guy. So I recommend checking it out, purepleasurepodcast.com. You can find all of our other shows at jabberjawmedia.com. And once again, I interrupted because all of these shows have loyal and engaged listeners just like us, which I am very grateful for. Kick ass. Anyway, our first question comes from Jesse. He writes... I love the podcast with yourself and Mike. Big fan as it is very informative and interesting too. My question is, 
if you could explain the different types of record label deals for bands. I work with a few bands that have been approached to sign 360 deals. Please explain the difference in some deals you know of for artists. So, Mike, label guy. Is it Morrissey or the Smiths with some girls? Uh, it's the Smiths, I thought so. But anyways, Morrissey's the singer of the Smiths, and he says some girls are bigger than others. Well, friends, 360 deals are deals that are bigger than others. So what we mean by that is they incorporate and take a 360-degree portion of of your revenue stream. So the whole idea started mm, as the music industry began to decline. What was that? 10 years ago, you know, somebody who got paid way too much money sitting in the ivory tower. No, that's education sitting in the beautiful glass building somewhere along Broadway Avenue in Manhattan said, Holy crap. I really like my office. I love my ski vacation to Aspen every year. And my kids love private school. And holy crap, we're not selling records anymore. So we have to figure out how we can continue to attempt to make up for that income. And so they said, hmm, all of these bands are touring. They're selling T-shirts. They're doing, you know, VIPs. They've got their publishing, yada, yada, yada. And we're not partaking in any of that. But as we help them grow, and they do grow, all of those revenues increase, and the sales of music aren't increasing the way that that they used to. So they said, aha, little light bulb goes off, let's take some of that revenue. And so that's the idea in general. There's very different specific things that can go into any part of that deal, meaning well, we'll leave it at that. We'll talk about the specifics in a second. Is that a pretty good explanation to you, Blasco, from your understanding of what a 360 is? Yeah, I mean, it's like 360, all-encompassing, meaning that the label is putting their hands in all pieces of the pie. Yeah, and, you know, I think much like anything, you know, we've talked about crowdfunding on the podcast, and when crowdfunding first emerged as a tool for artists, many people thought, you know, oh, man, this is a... You know, this is a not necessarily a good thing. And then as it continued to happen and fans got educated and bands got educated, it was like, oh, okay, this is actually a tool that can be used. I don't think that 360 deals are bad in and of themselves. The whole idea of a label, which really hasn't changed if they do artist development, is they invest resources into the band at an early stage and they're trying to make that income back. They used to be able to do it solely through music sales. Now that's much, much more challenging. And so they're saying, cool, you know, your music is a bit of your loss leader or it's not generating as much income as it once did, but maybe your t-shirts sell, maybe your concert tickets, you know, increase. And we're here building your overall brand, making people aware and therefore want to actually participate in those incomes. What I think is somewhat interesting, I've always sort of told myself this. I feel like if you're not actively participating in the rights that you're trying to take from, it's much harder to justify, you know, giving away um, a certain percentage. So by that I mean if a label is actively, you know, helping the band promote you know, the, the shows or the, or the tours, if they're actively promoting the t-shirts for sale, you name it, then, then I feel much more at ease with potentially giving up a portion of that income. 
How about yourself? Yeah, I mean, look, I've got two things on this. One is if someone wants a piece of like if a record label wants a piece of my merchandising or they want a piece of my touring my argument on this is well what are you going to do for those components to justify you getting a piece because i'm not just going to break you off a piece right like in terms of merchandising can you get me a t-shirt made for three dollars in terms of touring can you get me a van for cheaper can you can you get me a bus rental for cheaper than i can get it right those things to me justify breaking you off a piece but i can't pay a manager pay an attorney pay a business manager and then pay the label on top of all that i just can't do it that's one side on the other side to overly simplify what kind of record deals there are there's good deals and there's bad deals and that is directly reflected by the amount of leverage a band comes into a situation with right like if a huge band wants to do a 360 deal because you know they need to get paid in advance for all of their income streams because they for some reason need a million dollar paycheck that's their prerogative right but like on a smaller scale if you're a band that has no value and very little leverage going into a situation to th- sign a 360 deal that's unfortunate for you i would take a step back and just be like maybe we we need to reevaluate here and build up our value a little bit more so that we have more leverage to negotiate a better situation for ourselves yeah i mean i think that's well put and you know i mean i i know it's easy to say million dollars i mean frankly uh, if you're a completely unknown band and a label wants to take a chance on you and maybe even invest you know a hundred thousand dollars into you that can be very hard to get back through just music sales now of course that's the label's prerogative whether they're going to take their chance and you as an artist really need to decide how much do you think that label is worthwhile i'm almost sure you know and i should probably verify this before i put it out there on air but that's the beauty of podcasting we can say whatever the fuck we want i'm pretty sure that you know, a day to remember who ended up suing Victory said at one point, yeah, we hate the MFR. You know, he's totally treated us wrongly, but still, he was the only guy that was going to sign us when we, you know, when no one else would sign us. He's the guy that took the chance. And yeah, you know, he used all of the same you know, techniques that he uses to, to try to blow up other bands. And unfortunately, he also used the same techniques to hide money from them. But inevitably, you know, those are the choices and there can be very hard choices. You and I can sit here and talk about how to build leverage and it might never come. And sometimes a label and their expertise is what is going to be the difference between you having a shot and you not having a shot. Yep. Our second question comes from Kat. She writes, Hey there, I wanted to say that I have been enjoying the podcast and have been able to put a lot of your tips to good use. I have some questions for you guys that I would love to get your input on. I have been fortunate to find myself in a lot of songwriting sessions, some with local acts and some with more established names in the biz. My question is, what is the best way to handle oneself in these situations when it comes time to discuss how things should be split? I have received many opinions on this from you should establish this before you start writing to past managers telling me not to discuss it at all because they, the manager, are going to do that. Would love to hear your perspective on how things should work. Is there a standard? Oh, cat! Great question. And sadly, you know, much like anything else in the music business, 
there isn't much of a standard. I mean, there are some standard procedures that might help you in any of these situations, but just like we talked about in terms of record deals, they come in all shapes and sizes. And how to deal with songwriting credits and publishing, you know, neither of the scenarios that she's painted are wrong. It really depends on the people involved. I have watched bands get overly concerned about who's going to get what credit and therefore never really get started or completely, you know, destroy the creative process. I'm a much bigger fan personally of having there be a general understanding that it will be discussed at some point and allowing the creatives to go in and write not necessarily counting the you know notes they've written or the choruses they've written or the music they've written and just allow them to kind of freely like i said just write and you know in the back of their minds they know that cool we'll all approach it very fairly after the fact what about yourself as i understand it if you are in the room in a writing session you're included in the how the pie is split up even if you contributed nothing, if you're in the room on a song is being written, you're capable of being part of that. So if so, and, and for instance, right, someone could come back and be like, hey, man, I was in the room and legally they can make a claim that even if they wrote nothing, if they were in the room when that song went down, th- they should be broken off a piece. So if that is, in fact, a true scenario, then a, be careful about who's in the room whenever you're doing a writing session. I believe that it is important to establish who is getting what beforehand. But like you said, it is a case-by-case basis. In the event that it is sort of a, a younger band, a smaller band, I would think that you need to establish that out of the gate, and I would offer up the idea of just splitting things equally. So if there's an outside songwriter that's getting in the room with two band members, for instance, I would offer up in advance, we're all getting a third of this song that we write today, right? And go into it very, very transparently with that as an idea. In a situation where there's uh, you know, a more established kind of situation going on i think that you know that's that's going to be a case by case how that works out and a lot of times if you're going in with a a songwriter that's established he's going to carve it out for you like if you're going in and you're writing with desmond child his manager is going to come at you and just be like desmond's getting 50 percent of the song that's just the way it is you know what i mean no i mean absolutely i've watched plenty of guys even in you know the rock world that we exist that say you know frankly for me to show up i need 50 percent of you know any song you use whether I've written 10% or, you know, less doesn't really matter to me. My time, my, again, me being in the room <laughs> is either you're going to get my greatness out of it or just because I'm in the room, you're going to be greater, which, you know, listen, it's all about, just like you said in the, in the in the label part of this, it's all about leverage. If you've got an established track record for, you know, writing hits or being in the room when hits are written, those are the types of things you can start to command. And artists, you always have a choice, you know, especially going in to start stuff like that. Desmond Child says I need 50% and you're not comfortable giving up 50%, then you don't write with Desmond Child. You know, it's really that simple. And this is where I find so funny an artist. They always just think like, well, that guy, you know, he's a jerk. And it's like, well, I mean, he, you know, you can think he's a jerk all you want. Those are his criteria. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, wh- one of the things as a manager of, of developing artists that I've always found a little frustrating is it's not to take away from people writing songs in, you know, the genres that you and I mostly deal with, but inevitably, 
you know, most of this stuff was designed for people writing songs and then handing them to performers. When you've got five guys in a band, and yes, one guitar player writes 60% of the music, and you start to, you know, at, at the very developmental stage, start to really nickel and dime and figure that out and, and you know, ensure that the bass player gets zero percentage. Next time it's the bass player's turn to go fix the van because he's got a little bit of, you know, mechanical skills on him. You know, is he just going to say to you, like, I need money for that? And so this is where, uh, again, uh, and you know, for me, and, and we've talked about this on a past episode, it's like you've you got to be very careful at the early stages. I understand people want to protect themselves, but my, my least favorite thing is when a band has, you know, worked harmoniously together for the first two albums, and then all of a sudden they went on tour with somebody who, you know, gets in the singer's head and says, hey, dude, I know you write most of the music. You better make sure you get all the publishing on the next record. And then you just get infighting like no other because people feel like, you know, where is my value? If my value is in designing merchandise and ensuring that we've got a great merch lineup, you know, are you paying me extra for that? And inevitably they all say no. You know, why does one person get paid extra just because they, you know, write a song? Yeah. Two things I will add on this topic. She is writing to us from the perspective of a individual songwriter that, that she is. But in the event that um, there is a band, say, of four guys that are writing their record collectively and there is no outside songwriters, it is possible that the way you want to might uh, handle that is that when the album is done, you guys collectively as a band go through each song and sort of divvy up like, oh, well, this guy wrote the melody and the lyrics. He's probably deserving of, you know, 50% of the song, whereas that maybe the, the guitar player guy wrote the riff that inspired it. So maybe he's entitled to 20, you know, 20, 25% of the song. And the drummer just showed up and fucking played drums. And so he gets jack shit. And that's just and that's just the way it works. But, you know, maybe collectively everyone threw in a lyric, everyone threw in a riff or whatever. And so you divvy it up accordingly and let you guys all kind of you know hash that hash that out but in my experience those things in when treated like in a democratic fashion those things uh, tend to not end in fistfights so there's that and then the last thing that i will uh, uh cautionary on this subject if a, a third party songwriter is coming at you saying that he requires a fee meaning you have to write him a check to get in the room with you fuck that guy <laughs> i mean again Sometimes that can be simple. You know, we call that a work for hire in, in, in certain senses. And, and, I, and I do agree with you. You know, that, I feel like that stifles the creative. But I have seen people just say, hey, man, give me a thousand bucks and watch songs blow up where his portion would have been, you know, 50 times that, if not more. But I do agree with you. I mean, fuck that guy. Yeah. Our last question comes from Bobby. He writes, I was wondering about your opinions on street teams. When should you assemble one? How do you decide on incentives for the fans involved? And are street level ones really necessary anymore? Or is viral the way to go? Thank you so much for your podcast. It's been really helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, as everything moved to the digital age, some of the, you know, things that did work very well in the physical capacity kind of got, you know, pushed away. And, and part of it's because of cost. You know, if you can reach just as many people by doing online advertising as you thought you could, or frankly, you know, much cheaper, if you can reach just as many people by doing something online, you know, much cheaper than, 
assembling a street team, which requires you know somebody in in an office to actually coordinate it, creating materials, having those get handed out, you name it. Then why wouldn't you do the digital part? I do think that, however, some of this stuff you know became a little bit of a lost art of promotion. It's like there is a real value of handing somebody something in their hand and having them get that physical connection. Of course, inevitably, you know, when half of them go into the show and then they walk out and they've thrown the CD or whatever it is on the ground, you know, how effective has it been? So I think you got to kind of feel it out. I don't think that it's bad per se. If you can get people to actually, you know, hustle for you, that's fantastic. And, you know, one other thing that I've seen is people kind of getting online street teams, if you will. You know, they build a fan base and encourage others to kind of, you know, champion them, you know, amongst their friends at a high school or friends in whatever social circle they run in. What What is your experience, Ben? I, I mean, look, maybe I'm admitting fault here on some level, but like, I, I haven't used a, a physical street team in like a long time. Like my buddy, like used to have a, um, back, what would that be? Like late nineties, early two thousands, man. Like he had like a street team company that record labels would hire. And he had like a whole network of like, and he was killing it. Like it was a killing business, but that, that, but that's long since expired, right? So, like in terms of like a physical street team, I, I'm a little unfamiliar with that being, um, a, a, you know, a current situation. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. On the on the viral slash digital side, I mean, like you can create a, a private, you know, Facebook group of some kind and uh, incentivize people in that way. But in terms of like old school marketing street team level people, I'm, I'm a little unfamiliar with, to be honest. Yeah. And I mean, as far as deciding on incentives for fans involved, I mean, what do you think a fan would like, you know, (laughs) it's really easy sometimes to, you know, and I always go through this with my artists from merch designs down to, you know, VIP packages. It's not about what we want you know i'm a 43 year old man i might want a flask you know if you got an 18 year old kid they might want a flask too but they very well might not you know they might want something totally different so i think you know you 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 got to just kind of check your gut i mean if you were a fan of your own band and somebody came to you and said hey i really want you to help me promote whether it's viral or whether it you know sorry whether it's digital or whether it's physical what would you want if you were a fan of your own band you know, what would make sense? What's not going to break the bank as far as, you know, cost? You know, it amazes me that, you know, there's people that are excited that they'll contribute to something and, and a, a follow on Twitter is worth something to them. Yeah, I mean, you know, but it but, is <laughs> to some it, of these it, people. It's not to me, and I know it's not to you, Blasco, but to some of these young fans, that means the world to them. Spencer from Ice Nine Kills, Andy from Black Veil Brides, whoever it is, follows you on Twitter, you know, because you did something for their band, and that means a lot to you. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's not what I would want. It's what your fans want. Yeah, and look, you as a record label owner might be able to dig a little deeper into this, but at the end of the day, it comes down to budget, right? And if you're a band and you are, you know, somewhat in control of your budget or, you know, like the the record company is in control of the budget, it comes down to is the cost of a street team 
going to be something that you want to invest in or maybe can that money be spent somewhere else more practically you know what i mean like like of course there's still street level marketing going on and you could find a way to do that but it does cost money and is that cost maybe better spent somewhere else like an ad in a magazine or or, or like fucking billboards or you know what i mean who knows but i'm just saying like is that something that you find much value in because you're getting a return of that investment yeah Absolutely. Uh, well, that is it. I, look, I got to say um, thanks for everyone that writes in. I want to personally thank everyone that's a, a loyal listener to us and uh, is engaged enough to want to write in and you know, curious um, what you know our opinions are on on what your uh, what your topics are. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. It's why we started this. You know, obviously, it's fun for the both of us to sit here and talk about these things that, you know, in some senses, we do all day, every day. But it's nice for us to be able to talk about it, especially in a way that we think helps all of you out there in, uh, you know, loyal listener land. everyone for tuning in we will be back here next week in the meantime you can find me on twitter and instagram at blasco 1313 we encourage you to email us any questions or comments you may have for the podcast to me directly at askblasco at gmail.com because hey people we do the show for you considered a tool for understanding this ever so challenging and confusing business of music if you have listened thus far, much respect to you for making efforts to educate yourselves and taking your future into your own hands. Mike, any final parting thoughts? Just to echo the sentiment of what we've been talking about. I mean, this is a blast for us to do. And thanks to all of you that are out there listening. Wherever you are listening to this, please give us a rate and review if you don't mind. And more importantly, you know, tell a friend. If you think this is important to you, I'm sure somebody else that's in your you know, circle of music-minded friends would also think that it's important. I am excited to say that we are about to launch product two for Outer Loop Coaching. It will be a little bit different than 60 Days to Signable, which is going uh, swimmingly at the, this time. So keep your eyes and ears and everything else peeled. Head over to OuterLoopCoaching.com and sign up for the mailing list. You'll get the, the ebook for free if you haven't done that already. And last but not least, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike O'Loop. And that's where occasionally I post funny things like the uh, basketball clip that happened last night. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. 
So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com, and I'll see you there.